My name is Gina Martini. I'm the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. We have a great guest. He's a very good friend of mine, Professor Chaz Bountra, who is Pro's Vice Chancellor for Innovation at the University of Oxford. I'm joined by my colleague, uh, Sarah Cahill, who is a Clinical Research Fellow, and she's also comments to the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Today, Sarah will take the lead on the interview. Sarah, over to you. Hi, Chaz. Do you mind just introducing yourself and just saying what do you do at Oxford? Yes, uh, my name's Chaz Bountra. I'm the Pro Vice Chancellor for Innovation. I'm, I have a chair in translational medicine. I'm director of a new institute called the Centre for Medicine's Discovery. And before you started this role? Yes, I mean, I uh, did a postdoc in Oxford in the mid 80s. And then uh, late 80s, I joined the pharmaceutical company Glaxo which in 95 became Glaxo Welcome and then 2000 became Glaxo Smith Klein. I worked there until 2008 and then came back to Oxford. I should say, I mean, that's where I met Gino at uh, GSK. And, you know, I, I feel so lucky to have worked in a company like that because when you work with organizations like that, you just learn so much. And, and I did, you know, what? When I left academia and went into Glaxo, I knew very little about drug discovery. And working in a company like that, you know, you learn about you know, toxicology, you learn about sort of the challenges of getting molecules across the blood-brain barrier. You learn that, you know, things that work in the lab usually don't work in the clinic. You worry about sort of trying to generate medicines which are significantly better than what's already out there. and you know, there's so much you learn. And uh, and on top of that, you also learn so much about thinking strategically and getting from A to B as quickly as possible and leading large teams and creating teams and so on and so forth. And so I've been back in Oxford now 12 and a half years, and I'm trying to make use of everything I learned at GSK. And I'm working with lots of companies and lots of academics and lots of patient groups. And we're trying to come up with new targets and generate, help generate new medicines for patients. So that's what I do. Um, so my first question is, COVID-19 is forcing the research community to rethink how it does things. What's changed and what lessons can we learn from this? You know, I, I think, I mean, we're going to learn so many lessons from the past few months. The two big lessons I think are going to be that, or two big consequences after we're out of this pandemic is that we have to invest even more in healthcare. And, you know, I mean, here we're talking about a virus that started from one side of the world, has gone to the other side. It's caused hundreds of thousands of deaths. It's ruined the lives of tens of millions of people. It's you know going to cause many people to lose their jobs, many companies to go under, and probably a few countries to go into recession. And so I, I think the big lesson for me is that sort of we have to work together across the world. You know, sort of countries have to come together to tackle some of these big problems. You know, they, they're just too big to do on our own. And it and it's not just COVID, but sort of coming up with a new treatment for Alzheimer's or new treatments for 7,000 rare diseases or a new generation of antibiotics or, you know, new treatments for mental health. These are such tough problems that we just can't do them on our own. We have to work together. 
that's one thing and 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 the and of course you know I, I made the comment about we need to put a lot more investment into healthcare so those are the two big lessons more funding in healthcare and more international partnerships and that leads on to my next question so you have previously worked in GSK and did you ever imagine that pharma companies would work in partnership to coordinate such a joined up response to the covid-19 pandemic to be honest, uh, Sarah, yes. You know, the one thing I would say is that sort of if I look at the sort of the experience that I've had in the past few months in Oxford, you know, Oxford's an awesome place to work. I mean, I, I realize I work in a very privileged environment, etc. But I've had quite a few people say to me in the past few months, you know, what's so special about Oxford? You know, why is Oxford so great? Uh, you know, you've seen all the coverage that the vaccines had and it seems to be in the media on, on a daily basis and there's lots of great expectations and so on and so forth. There's the data that came out uh, a few weeks ago that hydroxychloroquine has no benefit. There was the data that came out just a, two or three weeks ago that dexamethasone, you know, this cheap generic anti-inflammatory is going to and it is and it will save lives of tens of thousands of COVID patients, etc. I mean, it, these have been amazing. So I've had people say to me, it's sort of, you know, why is Oxford, you know, in the media on a daily basis? What's so special about it? And, you know, my answer is, Sarah, just two things, actually. I think one, it's people, people, people. I mean, this place has phenomenal students. We have some amazing researchers. We have fantastic faculty we have an amazing alumni network across the world, you know, and these are many of these individuals are very successful in their own areas, but they're so passionate about continuing to work with Oxford and, in, and investing in Oxford. And then, of course, you know, in this ecosystem, it's just full of lots of great leaders and innovators and entrepreneurs and people who are really passionate about what they do. And, and it's, it just makes for such a fun environment. So that's one. The second thing is the culture in Oxford is really quite, I think, phenomenal. I know Gino's met uh, Regis Professor John Bell, and everybody knows him. I mean, he's just a unique individual. But he and many of my other colleagues and mentors, actually, I mean, Kay Davis, Mark Feldman, Peter Ratcliffe, Andy Carr, Fiona Powery. Yeah, I could just go on and on. These people over the past several decades, I, I think they've created a culture here in Oxford that, you know, that we've got some big problems to solve. And the only way we're going to solve them is by coming together and coming together across disciplines, across departments, across divisions, working with industry, working with governments, working with regulators, working with patient groups, working with funders, working with other institutes. And importantly, even working with other countries. So it doesn't surprise me, this this example, the, the vaccine example, I mean, sort of here, two brilliant academics, Adrian Hill, Sarah Gilbert, they founded this company, Vaxitech, and then senior leaders in the universities, John Bell, the Regis Professor, Gavin Screeton, the head of our medical school, Louise Richardson, our vice chancellor, you know, they work together. They work together with the UK government. They work together with AstraZeneca. They work together with the regulators. They work together with the funders. And literally in weeks, days, they did this deal. And this deal, it's, it's amazing. I mean, during the course of the pandemic, AstraZeneca and this university is not going to make any money. 
that drug, that vaccine will be given at cost. And so, you know, the cost of manufacture and distribution. And then even after the pandemic's over, that drug is going to be given at cost to low and middle income countries. I think that's a phenomenal deal. And it was done so quickly. And it is amazing. I mean, maybe one other big lesson, Sarah, is that sort of, you know, if everybody comes together and they just focus on that one goal, and that one goal is to get a vaccine ASAP, because there are tens of thousands of people dying every day across the planet. If everybody comes together, you know, the governments, the funders, the pharmaceutical companies, the regulators, it is amazing how quickly we can do things. You know, things that would have taken several years are being done in a matter of months. And it's that creativity and it's that alignment and it's that focus and it's that urgency and it's that single goal. So maybe there's some other lessons in there as well. So the key is collaboration, isn't it? And reducing those silo working, working together. I think there's also a bit more in there, Sarah. You know, I, I've already said, and I, I mean it sincerely, I, I know I work in a privileged environment. And in Oxford, you know, we have we have lots of great people, but we have lots of resources and we have lots of infrastructure and so on and so forth. But even in Oxford, we can't do everything on our own. We have to work with other people. We have to work with other organizations because other groups have got capabilities, resources, expertise that we do not have. And I think when you're tackling big problems and you want to do them quickly and cheaply and effectively, etc., you need to recognize what your own strengths are. But importantly, you need to recognize what your weaknesses are and you need to work with people who can address those weaknesses. Clearly, AstraZeneca can do things that there's no way the University of Oxford could do. And so that's why it makes for such a brilliant partnership. And then, you know, pulling in the regulators, pulling in the government. Of course, media has been very much involved, etc. I mean, I'm sure you could write a book on that experience. Yeah, so the whole world really is, is looking for a treatment or a cure for COVID. Can you give us any sense of what's happening in research at the moment, in particular in Oxford? Yeah, I mean, I, maybe I could give you three examples, actually. One of my dearest friends, Mark Feldman, who Gino knows well, the man who discovered anti-TNF drugs, uh, he's been a wonderful mentor for me for the past decade. You know how everybody's talking about sort of, you know, in, in people with a COVID infection, you know, they've got inflammation of the lungs and they've got inflammation in other organs and there's maybe a systemic inflammation and the cause of it is a cytokine storm, inverted commas. Well, so one of the key mediators of that cytokine storm, I believe, Mark Feldman believes, is TNF, tumor necrosis factor. Mark, of course, as you know, is the man who, with tiny many few years ago, discovered this class of drugs called the anti-TNF drugs. You know, and these are drugs that are currently being used to treat rheumatoid arthritis patients and inflammatory bowel disease patients. And it's interesting that sort of one class of drugs, I think, has generated more than $350 billion of sales across the planet. And it's completely transformed the lives of patients with rheumatoid arthritis and, and IBD, etc. It's an, an amazing thing. Anyway, Mark, in the past three, four months, he has been working with colleagues in Oxford and colleagues in the US and in industry. And he's designing clinical trials to look at these anti-TNF drugs 
in patients with COVID infections. I have to say, I'm very optimistic. I would be very surprised if that doesn't have any benefit. You know, so those trials are happening. So that I'm pretty excited about that. Another one of our colleagues, Raymond Dweck and uh, Nicole Zitzman, they are trying to generate some broad spectrum antiviral drugs. And you know they're developing assays and they're, they're pushing those hard. And Raymond's actually working with colleagues in China to try and push that forward, etc. Again, another example of international collaboration. Another very beautiful example is uh, a program that's been set up by one of my colleagues, Frank von Delft, a brilliant crystallographer, a guy named Chris Schofield, uh, who's head of our Department of Organic Chemistry, and a guy named Dave Stewart, who's got lots of expertise in structural biology and antiviral uh, drug development. But importantly, he's the research director at the Diamond Light Source, you know, the synchrotron at Harwell, 10 miles south of Oxford. So these three individuals have got together and they've, they're working on a new target for COVID. And what they did is uh, a platform that they developed a few years ago called XCAMP, which allows you to rapidly screen proteins, novel proteins, and identify small molecules that bind to these proteins. And so they could be starting points for drug discovery, if you like. And this platform uses high throughput crystallography. So this is a platform they developed a few years ago. So what they did was they've taken this novel protein, which they think could be a new target for COVID. They screened a library of compounds. This is stuff that they've all done literally in the past four months. They screened this library of compounds. They've identified a number of molecules that bind to this protein. And what they did was they released all of that data to the world. Literally, you know, these are the molecules that bind, etc. And the idea was to crowdsource chemistry. So get the whole world, any chemist anywhere in the world, in India, in South Africa, in Australia, wherever, they could take those molecules and they could think about how to optimize those molecules, potentially to try and generate a molecule that we could take into the clinic. And so literally within weeks, they got, I don't know how many hundreds of people across the world working on these with the data that they generated. And now in a matter of weeks, they've identified molecules with increased potency. And now they're trying to push those forward. And that this program they called Moonshot, but it's an example of a, a new target. It's used a platform that you know, we established here, or Frank Von Delf and Paul Brennan and Chris Schofield and Dave Stewart did a few years ago. They generated these chemical starting points. They didn't patent them. They shared them with the whole world. They've got chemists across the world working on it, and they're working together to design a molecule, potentially, that we could take into the clinic. And again, they've done that in a matter of weeks and months. I mean, it's phenomenal. So again, another example of collaboration, and again, international partnerships. I mean, they're working with people they've, they've never even met before. You know, this is the power. This is what we can do if we put our minds to it. So those are three examples, anti-TNF, broad spectrum antiviral, and then the Moonshot program.
really, really interesting, especially the last one. Can you explain why a vaccine might take up to 18 months to develop? I can assure you my colleagues, Sarah Gilbert and Adrian Hill, who have become sort of household celebrities, I think, rightly so. I mean, they are optimistic about doing that more quickly. I know, I know Sarah is hopeful that we will get data on efficacy in the next few months. Hopefully it won't take 18 months. A friend of mine, Mene Pangloss, is the head of R&D at AstraZeneca, and he was absolutely behind this deal with the university. And, you know, he's pushing hard, as is the AstraZeneca CEO. And they are already manufacturing the vaccine at risk. AstraZeneca have already got in place the network, the infrastructure to potentially generate two billion samples. I mean, it is just... It's phenomenal. I mean, I, if nobody else writes about it, I think I will. So I, I think, Sarah, I, I think we have to be optimistic. I mean, there's, uh, you know, what, 150 odd vaccines in development. We want a few of them to sort of make it all the way. And it doesn't really matter which ones, as long as they're made available to the world. Obviously, you know, I'm rooting for the Oxford one. and um, But at the end of the day, you know, we just need something that we can give to everybody on the planet so that we can get back to some sort of normality of life or the sort of life we enjoyed in December last year. You know, I, I've, I've said to Gino, I mean, sort of at the moment, that there are many elderly people, many vulnerable people who have been confined to their homes for the past four months. And, you know, you think how much longer can they continue that sort of existence? So we need this vaccine quickly. Until we do, there's going to be no hugs and kisses. So um... <laughs> Not at all. Um, so my last question is, do you think that we will see more research and manufacturing being reinvested back into the UK now post-COVID? So more vaccine manufacturing, medical device production? Yeah, I do. Uh, I do. Like I said, I, I think we will see much more investment in healthcare. And uh, I think everybody realises at the end of the day, this is, the most important thing for each of us is, you know, being healthy. <laughs> There's nothing more important. And it makes you realize that what we're all trying to do is so incredibly important. So I think we are going to see a lot more uh, investment in healthcare across the world. I think we will see it in the UK. I think we will build capabilities in areas that we currently don't have and uh, all the vibes we get from the UK government is that's what they want to do. And I, I, I've discussed this with Gina. What the UK government or what we in the UK and actually all societies across the world need, I mean, the, over the past several months, rightly, the government has been spending tens of billions sort of looking after people in the UK. But governments across the world, they can only function if they have tax revenue. And if we're going to end up having two or three million people unemployed, you know, we need to create jobs. And I think this is where universities have a big role to play. I think we have to create new companies, we have to create new platforms, we have to create new industries. And I've often said to Gino, if, you know, I, I think sort of across the world, there's what four or five companies that are each worth more than a trillion dollars. So Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, etc. And uh, it's interesting, they're all data technology companies. 
And if you look at the most valuable pharmaceutical company, I think it's J&J, and that's about maybe just under $400 billion. So it's nowhere near a trillion. Even though many pharmaceutical companies, they've been around for maybe a century or two centuries, etc. I think what we're going to see in the next decade, I think we're going to see somebody create the first healthcare data technology company, and that company is going to end up being a trillion dollars. And that's going to happen in the next decade. I hope that happens in the UK, or maybe I hope it happens in Oxford. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to record the podcast with us today. Well, Sarah, it's nice to talk to you and thank you for everything that your society is doing. Pharmacists have an incredibly important role to play in the new healthcare ecosystem and um, we have to do everything we can to help each other. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for taking lead on the uh, Chief Scientist podcast interviews. Chaz, again, on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, I'd like to thank you for your for your time. I know how incredibly busy you are in sharing your views and expertise. Thank you for the compliments to our profession and thank you for all the support you've given the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Stay safe.